Last week we looked at the first few verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we saw that Paul was writing in a very raw and vulnerable way. He'd been through the ringer, frankly. And although he's not quite on the other side yet, there's a real sense of resolve going on in his life here. And we see that summed up in just a few key ways in that first part of the chapter. If you'll remember, we saw that he remembered and was strengthened by the resurrection. That meant so much to him at that time. You see, if Jesus didn't rise, then none of what he was going through was worth the effort. But like the old song goes, because Jesus lived, Paul could face tomorrow. See what I did there? <laughs> we saw that he took hold of two key traits found in the character of God. We, he tapped into the idea of God as the good father but also tapped into the idea that God is the good Father who is rich in mercy. So it is the God of mercy, the God of, of, uh, of uh, compassion. And Paul was enriched and experienced a specific ministry of the Spirit. And you'll see that he's becoming quite obsessed with this concept and this ministry of the Spirit. This was the experience that we translate as comfort. He describes comfort as both an experience of being consoled but also being exhorted. It's exhortation and consolation. It's picking you up. It's urging you forward. It's acknowledging your hurts but also calling you to move forward in where your life is at. And it's important that he has those things down because what he's about to write into, he kind of needed to cling to those things. And uh, so that's the sort of backdrop. That's what we've covered so far. And now Paul turns his attention to some new things. So we're going to look at uh, chapter 1. And we're going to still look at verses 12 to 24 today. So you can read with me in your Bibles or on the screen. Here we go. Now this is our boast. That's a big word right there. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first, so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or did I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it. 
that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. Okay. Paul, when we read last week, we understand that Paul had been through the battle of his life. Everything was being shaken to its foundations. The point of understanding the sentence of death, understanding this call to martyrdom, understanding this idea that I'm going to die before Christ returns, and there's a very real possibility of that now. The element of despairing of life itself, thinking about breathing his last, actually coming, coming to an end of things, is the end of his rope. There was terrible things going on around him and the riots in Ephesus and the treatment there and the wild beasts of people that wanted him dead was quite full on. Even in Macedonia where he's sitting now and able to write this, there's already been Jewish populations wanting to kill him. So he's gone through all this stuff and he's found the God of comfort in the face of all that. But while all that's going on, he's in the battle of his life. There's a few people in a church under his leadership, under his watchful pastoral eye, just across the ditch, that has gotten caught up in first world problems and making all sorts of frivolous accusations about him. Just a few people rising up, making life difficult, both for him and for the church that he's trying to lead there. There is very clearly a presence in the Corinthian church at this time that is opposing the leadership and the doctrine of Paul. Some of this opposition is local and consistent with the opposition being addressed in 1 Corinthians. Some of this is also external and acknowledged later in 2 Corinthians. Jews apparently teaching an alternative gospel and establishing themselves as an alternate apostolic authority. To do this, they would need to ensure that their elevation would come at the cost of Paul's gospel and Paul's reputation. Paul's gospel is one that he has already defended to them quite strongly 1 Corinthians 15 is his gospel. But now these alternate leaders may have been creating doubt about Paul's message and his character and they're making statements about his motives and methods and he's answering those things here. This passage actually shows and gives us a bit of insight about how seemingly petty these things actually were. Paul initially had had a pretty simple plan, travel plan. He described it in 1 Corinthians 16. I'm going to go, I'm currently in Ephesus. Timothy's going to come and hang with you for a while and uh, he'll come back. He's going to join me. We're going to hang in Ephesus while this missionary door stays ajar. We'll go from Ephesus to Macedonia and then on the way to Jerusalem, we're going to stop through Corinth on the way through and be a blessing to you guys and hopefully you can be a blessing to us. That was the plan. Simples, right? Plan A was that. But in practice, plan B and even plan C kind of emerged. Plan B, Paul sent Timothy. Timothy came back deeply worried about the Corinthian church and their conduct. 
So Paul decided to make a quick stop back and steady a dysfunctional ship. Then he went back to Ephesus and then when it was necessary he went on to Macedonia. This quick stop in Corinth is called the painful visit. Initially there appears to have been another visit planned but instead Paul wrote a letter and sent that with Titus instead. It appears that most people in the Corinthian church understood what he was doing. They were catching his heart, they were understanding his motives, they knew the guy. Verse 14 says, you've understood us in part. So they are, they're getting an idea that, Paul, you know, that, that Paul's not a bad guy, this is just life and circumstance. But there's others who saw that his second visit and the subsequent severe letter as something else. And they spun it to make their position stronger. Their accusations are like this. This is how they created doubt amongst the Corinthian church a bit. This is how they began to undermine the message of Paul. Paul said one thing, then did another. He said he'd stay put in Ephesus, but now he makes a surprise visit on us. Then he says he'll be back soon and instead he sends a letter. Paul's unstable. Paul is fickle. That's the word Paul uses to, uh, to answer charges. That's the yes, no bit that's being spoken of there. Paul is heavy-handed. Paul's a control freak. Those are the things being said while Paul's in the middle of one of his greatest ever battles. But it's amazing that after receiving the work of the God of comfort, he is then able to defend these actions in a way, in a wholesome way, and speak graciously to the church that he's addressing. But also this shows some good insights about the way a leader sometimes has to operate. Paul's defence opens with the word boast. Today we find the word boast a little bit offensive. Because boastful people, who likes hanging around people who do nothing but boast? I don't. Boastful, constantly boastful people can be, you know, unpalatable. But Paul is actually writing from a healthy place here. Paul's already quoted this passage before, Jeremiah 9. He's, you know, like a good you know, reformed Pharisee, he knows the Old Testament really well. And he's no doubt tapped into Jeremiah 9 a lot in his life and ministry. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Let the one who boasts, if you have to do it, let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Paul goes, I've got a boast to make. And he's coming from the healthy position of understanding Jeremiah 9 here. He's finding reason to boast in this way alone. And he goes on to explain this further. 
This is because he has deeply examined himself before the Lord in the face of what is being said about him. He's taken stock of his conduct before both believers and unbelievers. He sought the Lord over these things and had his motives checked by God. He's looked back and he's seen godly wisdom trump the world in his dealings. He's confident of his own integrity. He's confident that he has had a sincere attitude in what he's doing. Not false care, false sincerity, but a real sincere heart that only God can produce in a man. He's looked and considered his heart towards the people he is ministering to. He makes it clear to the Corinthians that he actually wanted to spend more time with them even than the time that he knew he could spend. He looks forward to making a similar boast of them in eternity. So there's affection there and he's hoping that they feel the same way. He's actually wanting their affection and their spiritual affection back towards him as well, their affirmation of him. He clearly states at the end of this passage that he has no desire to lord over their faith. They had one Lord to answer to. It wasn't him. But he did say, I want to come alongside you. It was his desire to serve them, to work with them towards knowing the Lord better. In these things, Paul has come to the point where his conscience is completely clear. In verse 23, he says he can, before the Lord, stake his life in this conviction. (laughs) Even if the change in plans made it appear to be something else to the Corinthian church. Corinth had little idea of the affliction and hardship he was going through across the sea. They also weren't all that self-aware either (laughs) to know just how much work they were and how much challenge it was to pastor that church in their infancy still. We've got to remember, Corinth at this time, the church in Corinth, is still only four years or so old. The believers are still babies, still finding their footing. Imagine, you see, we, we come in, we come to church and we kind of merge with an existing journey. They started from complete paganism and had to navigate Jesus in that. So we know that they had some growing to do here and Paul definitely knows that too but it's not being made easier by these false leaders coming in. As we go into a time of planning for 2018, I think there's some great lessons in this for our congregation right now. The first simple thing is this, that as a church we need to understand that plans can change from time to time. In a couple of weeks' time, Vision Sunday will announce some pretty amazing things. It's always subject to change because different factors kick in. Is that because we failed or is that just because life kicked in? We've just got to bear those things in mind. We need to be trusting of each other as we actually lay out good plans and, and, and set out good plans for ministry, but also know that sometimes those things shift along the way. That's a trust thing that we need to have amongst ourselves. But also, we have a value as a church to deliberately develop leaders as ministers. Every believer is, a, is to become a minister. That is my conviction. And that's a very Baptist thing, the priesthood of all believers. We are 
understanding that every single one of us is called to be ministers of the gospel and to, called to be servants to our community in the church around the place to, you know, and actually be announcers of God's kingdom through that means. We value this value, we, we hold this value so dear that we bring in big guns like Jonathan Stark next week. And I believe we are in a season where we're going to be needing people who can lead boldly. Some of us here are already becoming aware of that right now. Leading in ways that perhaps we haven't led before. Speaking into things and addressing things that we perhaps haven't dealt with before. Learning new skills and, and, and doing new things. I believe there's a season of boldness coming for all of us to lead boldly. The internship idea is part of that too. Bold leadership and bold Christian ministry attracts a bit of heat from time to time. I can say that from a position of both pain and victory because after 20 years of church leadership, I can attest to that. But my journey is nothing compared to Paul's. And Paul's approach to this passage is really important today. First up, do what Paul did. Memorize Jeremiah 9, verse 23 to 24. Let us never get to a point where we can boast in anything other than what God is doing in us. Let us boast about no worldly wisdom that we attain, but let's boast in the things that we have learnt through the Spirit. Let's boast in our knowledge of God. Let's boast in His understanding, His heart, and operating in, in kindness and love the way He does. Memorise those two verses and lead from that. That'll, that'll, the influence we wield from that is amazing. If we want to boast, do it in the Lord. But also, as fellow ministers, all of us here, we need to be bold even with ourselves and examine ourselves often. We need to ensure that our motives and our character and our conduct come under healthy scrutiny often. Not the accusations of the world, they'll come in dribs and drabs, but the healthy, real things. From Paul, we can learn that we can do this with long looks in the mirror. We can do this in the prayer closet. Paul, no doubt, had Timothy and Silas and Apollos and other fellow ministers around him. He could do this with mentors and those he trusted, and so can we. We should do this with an ear open to the Spirit, because His Spirit bears witness with us. And then we can minister effectively, influentially in the safety of that sort of examination of ourselves. If we do that, the misunderstandings and the persecutions and the divisive influences may come. The fiery darts might get thrown our way. But they won't steal our resolve or dilute our influence. But, there's this other thing. In the middle of this defence, 
there is an all-important part in this passage. Where is Jesus in all this? Paul says this, even if you think I'm all yes and no, (laughs) in other words, you think I'm flighty or inconsistent or up and down or whatever it is you accuse me to be, I want you to focus on this one thing. The gospel is 100% stable and dependable. And the method in which you received it is 100% reliable. Let me explain how this looks. Paul is saying here that the gospel he preached did not change. The false apostles were making the gospel different. If they were Judaizers, if they were people trying to bring the law of Moses into the practice of Christianity, that was an alternate gospel being done there. Some of that went as far as calling for circumcision of all Gentile believers. Some of that you know, embraced the Mosaic law in different ways. And Paul's going, no, by grace alone you're saved. Let's get this gospel right. In the time he spent there, God's promises were always shown to be yes through the death and the physical resurrection of Christ. God's promises are yes in Christ. That's what he's meaning. That's what he's referring to. Furthermore, since it was very evident that the Holy Spirit was present and active in their midst, that's why he spent chapter 12 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians dealing with the subject. They were to see this as evidence of God's yes promise. Paul assures them that they have been anointed and they have been placed under a seal of ownership. In ancient times, documents sealed by regal authority would be done with a wax bowl seal. And this is the sort of image that it would have, uh, have caused them to see. As believers, we are God's. We bear his seal. He is our father and we are his kids. He is our regal, our sovereign. We are his servants. We have freedom to be our own expression. But we also know that the will of our Father takes precedence over our own will. I learned that as a kid. I'm free to be Cam, the five-year-old, running around in the backyard. In the backyard, I'm free to be me. (laughs) But when Dad barked and said, come inside, son, my will kind of becomes second, right? Dad speaks, mum speaks, kids will, second. It's true in those families, it's true in the family that the church is also. God is Father and our wills come under His. And the spirit given to us is described by Paul as a deposit. Another way this Greek word is used is the word pledge it was a word used to describe a payment up front in the promise of a complete purchase to come that is even today we understand it that way paul has already spelled out to the corinthians that we are bought with a price so we've already been part of a transaction between god and man through jesus 
It was also a word used in the ancient time to describe what we, what we might call by equivalent an engagement ring. It therefore speaks of betrothal. We are an excited bride waiting for a groom. And because of the spirit dwelling in us, we are already committed to the idea of forsaking all others. And Corinth forsaking all other pagan ways, all other worldly wisdom, all the teaching of the sophists and the philosophers and cleaving to Christ alone. And to top it all off, this message was first proudly proclaimed by three men. Paul and Silas and Timothy proclaimed the gospel to Corinth and they received it. Why does Paul go to pains to say that? To name drop? Or is he tapping to what he knows from Deuteronomy 19? At the testimony of two or three witnesses shall a matter be decided to him his gospel had been declared declared and and presented and it was ironclad case rested because three witnesses came all these saying of the gospel points to this conclusion <laughs> Corinthians no matter what you think of the messengers the message stands the messengers may be fallible. They might come across as fickle because they're just men and women doing their best to be faithful. But God is 100% yes. He is completely faithful. He's infallible. And this gospel that they and we have received and that Paul has strongly de defended This gospel that we have received is completely reliable. And we can stake our life and our eternity on it. I'm going to wind up there. I'm going to come to an end. It's warm in this building and I know on summer's days our attention spans drop by about 10%. Mine included. <laughs> Speaking of best laid plans, <laughs> I mapped this series out. Originally to cover more ground each week than what we have. Today I was going to go into chapter 2 and glance at chapter 7. Aren't you glad I didn't? <laughs> so hopefully you'll forgive my fickleness for stopping at this point. <laughs> but seriously, there's a few things for us to take this morning. Some reflection points. One, as I've said earlier, there's a clear call to bold leadership coming for our congregation. Bold, influential, serving ministry taking place. This word leadership is a bit of a thing that kind of uh, grinds on me a bit. I, I, I know we use the word leadership today, but that wasn't a strong thing in the church until about the 60s onwards. Before that, we were ministers. And I really want to see us come back to that, that every believer is a minister and therefore every, out of our ministry gift we lead others, we influence others. And influence, leadership at its most basest definition is influence. But there's a clear call for us to boldly minister coming. That those who are in positions of 
ministry and, and, and who, are, who get elected by the church or, or who take up a, a role of oversight in a, a ministry context or even play a part in a team. I believe the Spirit is calling us to bold things. This will come with permission and a challenge to be innovative, to bring fresh things, to be moved by the Spirit, to break the mold a bit. It will come with permission to fail and grace to grow and learn from those times too. It's just another way it didn't work. But this will be carried out by people who can minister and not, and not be a behave above examination. If being examined is below you, you will never be an effective minister. This examination comes from the Spirit. It comes from ourselves. Honest looking in the mirror. But also we understand that that can be quite subjective at times. I look in the mirror and, you know, like seriously, I can see all sorts of things that aren't there. Physically I see a brilliant body, you know, it's like... arms bigger than they really are, things like that. It's the same in the spirit, it's the same in our, in, our, in our makeup, our moral makeup. We can walk in the mirror and go, yeah, I'm fine. But the spirit plays a part in this. Mentors and overseers play a part in this. The collective wisdom of the membership of the church plays a part in this. And if we can lead and we can minister and influence people from a position of being examined, we find ourselves in a safe place. From this safety, we can lead boldly and see great things happen for the kingdom. If all this boldness is going to emerge, this means the church needs to be in a place of really strong trust towards each other too. This is not me asking you for more trust towards me because you give me a lot already. I'm preaching to the choir here. But it is trust for all those others who are brave enough to step up and be ministers in this setting and in our midst. To be open to newer, younger voices leading us in worship and and speaking into the life of the church. To, To be open to the influence of other people that we might not have heard from before. To hear fresh things and be able to trust people to have a go with that. And let's be sure not to make unfounded assumptions of each other. Let's be open books with each other. Let's be transparent. And if we don't understand something, ask. Quickly. Don't let things fester. And my last thing is this. I believe 2018 is going to be a year of missional expression for our church. This means the gospel and God's promises need to be an affirmative and an unshakable yes in our hearts, minds and convictions. We've been on a journey in elementary to help do that. To find in the word of God and the understanding of the spirit that, gee, There's things I need to know and there's things I can know and I can stake my life on it. Paul writes that we can stake our lives in eternity on the gospel of Christ. 
Have you got that settled in your heart? There's lingering doubts. Maybe laying them at the foot of the cross before we go into a new year. Maybe navigating those things and talking out with a house church leader or meeting a minister or, or, or seeking help or research might be a journey for you. But for us to boldly lead a minister, we're going to need our ducks in a row with the gospel also. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to invite the band to come up and I'm just going to close in prayer.